Time is ticking, so let's not waste any. I'm Liam Garrity. It's time to meet your maker. I mean, meet your maker. If you want to know the time, more often than not, you look at your phone. Not a watch or a clock, and definitely not a sundial or hourglass. But in recent history, a clock was not just a way of finding out the time. It was a beautiful object in its own right. Well, there's a shop in Dublin that should you pass, you will be treated to a cavalcade of gorgeous old clocks. That shop is run by Kevin Cheller. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. We're here in the middle of Patrick Street in the heart of the Liberties. We're entering timepiece antique clocks here. So we're going to open the shutters and kick off a day's work. Time marches on Time marches on The young gets old and the old get cold Time marches on For well over 30 years, Kevin Scheller has been restoring clocks. Well, it's very strange business, isn't it? So long time ago they had a, an institute in Blanchardstown beside the hospital there, Connolly Hospital, the Irish Swiss Institute of Horology. It was a watchmaking course, a three-year full-time course, uh, set up by the Swiss Watchmakers Federation to improve the standard of watchmaker around the world. They had a number of them. They gave us a very solid training and I got in there quite by accident. A pal of mine lived in Blanchardstown and his mother heard about it <laughs> and she talked him into doing it and he talked me into doing it. The shop is filled with the most beautiful clocks you've ever seen. And the sound, the sound is like hundreds of crickets. When you see handwork, it's it's just awe-inspiring to see that somebody carved this, turned that, cut this, and how they did it with, with so little light. Like... If you go back into the 19th century, what have we got? You, you had daylight in the nor- northern hemisphere up to maybe 3 o'clock and then it starts getting dark. Where I have a huge amount of light, and I, have, I have three or four desk lights beaming in onto the area that I work in where they had gaslight. I'm sure half of them went blind at an early age, you know. quarter repeat and in the early 18th century that was made in Galway by by Johnson who in 1728 became the sheriff of Galway so he was obviously well placed that's a rare clock very rare so you pull the cord in the dark to know the time so the first set of bells you've got a descending scale of five notes that's to indicate one quarter and then you've twice that it tells you it's half past and then it gives you the number of the hour so in the dark you just pull down the, on the rope, it charges up your spring inside and it, it, by bell, tells you what time it is. Where 
do you end up acquiring them? Well, some of the things that we have come from here. We have collectors that are in their pensionable years. They actually let out one or two. I suppose they bought them over a lifetime. And so I have people all around Ireland that might fall into that category. And sometimes if they have something that they've acquired, it's a bit like stamp collecting, they may have one of those already and they're looking for something else. And there's a little bit of a barter going on in that way. And then there are a few auction houses, but auctions are difficult because you really don't get to view very carefully. And we travel a lot. So we would attend trade events. They refer to them as débalage. We also do the places like Paris markets, although they can be expensive. So you're, you're looking for the one that maybe somebody doesn't know as much about as you do. We've also bought clocks as far away as Houston. So Houston, New York, we've bought in Stockholm, we've bought in a lot of places around the UK, particularly Irish things that were, what would you say, exported in one way or another. Either they left in the 20s when there was an exodus of people out of the country carrying with them certain types of goods that they could muster. Tax is a, is a big issue. And if you remember, there was 35... Well, you may not, because you're too young, but there was 35% VAT on, on a, an item like that. And, of course, if you exported to the UK back in the day, there was no VAT. So an awful lot of things left this country, assisted by you know, the great and the good that make these decisions that we have no control over, and I don't think they ever really understand the ramifications of. Certainly lots of really special things left the country because there was more money outside the country and they were cheaper sent to England than they were bought here. Do you have to go around putting all these clocks that were surrounded by an hour forward or an hour back? Well, in the old days, I I probably would, or, or my wife Carol might. But these days, we're extraordinarily lucky. We have somebody that comes in on a Wednesday who's just a hobbyist, a former customer, and, and they, they love being around the clocks. Colin comes in and he just winds and sets them all. So I, I no longer have to do any of that. And he's thrilled to kind of feel and handle and be so close to them, you know. My name is Coleman Curran. I'm originally kind of a, a clock collector and a hobbyist, and Kevin is good enough to let me come in here and work a couple of days a week, and he's taught me quite a bit about how to do basic repairs. This is just a, it's a grandfather clock. It's made by Hopkins and Hopkins, who were jewellers and clock repairmen working in Dublin from the middle of the 19th century through to about 1970. But this clock was made about 1880, And interestingly, they were on the corner of Ellis Quay near O'Connell Bridge during the 1916 Rising, and their building was blown up by the British because some of the rebels were holed up there, so the British blew the entire building up. But they brought a claim for compensation and were successful, and they got their compensation, and they got back into business, and they traded on up until... I think the 1960s or or early 70s. And I just found out anecdotally last night that they got the commission to make the Sam Maguire Cup in 1928. So there's a little bit of history attached to this clock and and the business of Hopkins and Hopkins that's interesting. And, you know, when when you're trying to sell a clock, it's nice to have a little bit of background about who made it or, you know, the, the company that made it and so on. Well, I suppose... You have centuries of art and taste here, and really clocks are where art meets mechanics and science. You could have a little clock 
clockwork, just the clockwork itself and a pair of hands and probably wouldn't have any human interest. But you've got Father Time in the centre of the window there and he's the god Kronos and you've got him there and he has the clock under his arm and he has his side there. I suppose that's the touch of the Grim Reaper, you know. That's a wonderful bronze. And it's really not about the clock, it's more about the movement that's within his wings and his hair, kind of muscles in his hands and stuff like that. So that, that is one type of art. And then you have all of these French clocks that seem to have two and a half centuries, certainly in this shop, and there are older clocks than that, but I have about two and a half centuries of clocks here. And they have so many different art takes. So you have black with gold lacquering and designs of butterflies. And then you have bronze work. There's one over here, an empire clock, showing a sort of a Polynesian house. And it's just a way of bringing home ideas from around the world. Certainly that lacquer clock is more Japan in in its texture. I sold one over the last couple of days, which was very Islamic. It's it's because of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And it was such a wealthy area. So the French were producing a clock in that kind of texture and, and... feel they're also very good marketeers and they're they're trying to sell something that would suit different countries tastes and boy oh boy are there different tastes like i I would go to europe we might spend three days see about two thousand clocks and i'd say at least half of them you couldn't even dream of bringing them home because people would look at them and say oh my god how could you have so little taste you know so you have to pick and choose the ones that would suit the the irish frame of mind It's a bit like changing the oil in the car. You know, you can you can drive on in with, with your clock. We can lubricate the bearings and what we call the escapement. That's the piece that ticks. And that, that is your minimum intervention. It's the cheapest thing you can do for your clock, and it's the most important. We would also offer all sorts of services that they don't have to be overhauls, but something can happen within a clock, something in the winding perhaps, and we don't force people down a full overhaul road essentially because we've just too much work to do it's 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 not necessary and then an overhaul is a complete strip and we go right through every piece and attend to the wear and tear within it and clocks are like human beings like if you've got wear and tear in your knees and your hips you haven't got the same level of energy flowing through your body and it's very hard to to do things and you get tired quite quickly and the clock is the same and they don't perform very well but if you if you maintain a quality clock and a quality clock doesn't mean money. You can buy a quality clock for 100 quid. Value tends to revolve around desirability, and desirability changes every 10 years. So you can get good clocks from the 19th century for, say, a couple of hundred euro, and they're well worth maintaining. And if you maintain those well, long after I'm a distant memory and my children have grandchildren, those clocks should still be serviceable, uh, such as the quality of them. If a clock comes in and it needs to be fixed and, um, I mean, I'm sure the parts aren't as uh, easy to come by. Well, you see, just the, the question that you framed there is a modernistic question. So we're not looking to change anything. In fact, um, it's my last resort. So we will take things that are worn and improve on them. So 
If you've got worn metal, we'll try and cut underneath that and represent a finish. And to that end, we have lathes. I have three lathes there, two small ones and a large Myford. When you get to a point where there's nothing that you can do because maybe something has been lost or something's completely destroyed, I keep a lot of scrap. So I buy old clocks. We would try and keep grandfather clocks here, drawer of French clocks, drawer of carriage clocks, and we, we may harvest something out of that. We could say no a lot, a lot more often and get a little more refined, but you'd be disappointing a lot of people. It's, it's hard enough at the moment when people bring things that are so sentimental to them. I have had grown men in tears in the shop because the, you know they've lost a loved one, they've got their clock, it was a wedding present, and you're, you're trying to tell them and let them down gently that there's no point in putting any time into something. And at that point then uh, of, of emotion, you're, you're, you're lost and you have to do something, you know. But, but by and large, we, we try and deal with quality. Things, I don't care about the value of them. It's only are they worth restoring for somebody and will they last a long period of time? In other words, will they give good service? As well as that, you know, getting to a, a point of my own age where I, uh, I jealously guard my time. And I'm not prepared to waste it on, on something I really don't want to do or, sh- or something that shouldn't be done. People have a very bad habit of setting their hands and their clocks backwards. And, of course, you get loads of phone calls. Oh, the striking doesn't work anymore. Oh, the clock doesn't work anymore. Oh, my God, I've bent the hands. My dad's an engineer. He was an electronics engineer. And uh, his father was a civil engineer. My mother's father was a mechanical engineer. And my son is a biomedical engineer. So in the end, I suppose, no matter how you fight against things, your, your genes tend to kind of determine which way you might go. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. And that you can rely. No matter what the future brings, as time goes by. My mother's from Dublin. Her parents were from Limerick and from Wicklow. They're Dillons and Burns. Uh, my dad is from Ceylon, and the northern part of Ceylon. And one of the days he got a, a scholarship. He was very good at mathematics, unlike myself. And he headed to Europe, and he got himself a, an Indian chief. His, his, it's a bit like Jack and the Beanstalk. His mother sent him out with the money for a plane, a plane ticket. So he went into town, and he bought himself an Indian chief, which is a... I think it's a 1300cc motorcycle with a sidecar and himself and a friend hopped on this bike and and they headed off and they drove up across from from Ceylon or Sri Lanka as it's called now across to India, up through India, across uh, Pakistan. Eventually they ended up Lebanon and and the reason that they took this particular route is because his uncle was the Bishop of Colombo, a Catholic bishop and of course he'd sent letters it's a bit like the old Knights Templar and they got their little temples along the way and they hopped from church property to church property and, and they, they gave a dig out along the way for their keep. They eventually ended up in Europe. So unfortunately the Indian chief died a death in France and in, instead of doing something about it, they left it. I discovered recently that an Indian chief motorcycle of the same type was sold for 350,000 <laughs> euros and... Uh, Oh, my, my, my poor dad had passed away by that point, so I, <laughs> I couldn't regale him with that. So anyway, he ended up in London, got his scholarship, and he met my mother there. She wasn't interested in going back to Ceylon, and uh, 
they eventually settled here in Dublin under her command. conscious of time working you know surrounded by clocks yeah i suppose you've got to be um of a certain type so i have a mechanical practical side of me and then i have an artistic side of me which um so i've always played a little bit of guitar always had an interest in form but i like that micro world you know you put on the headset and a couple of eyeglasses you can get in you see things that no one else ever gets to see It's at this point Kevin looks at his watch and sees it's time to close for the day. In a few weeks' time, I'll be in my 60th year. And, of course, when I met older clockmakers and watchmakers that I received help from, they were all probably 60 to 80, and they're all gone now. I'm sure they'll be saying the same about me not <laughs> in the pretty near future. Do you remember your man, Dylan Patrick Street? <laughs> I think he was a chancer. <laughs> Fly-by night that only lasts about 35 years, you know. Time marches on. The young gets old and the old get gold. Time marches on. Time marches on. Time marches on. Meet Your Maker is produced and hosted by me, Liam Garrity. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. And I try not to ask this often, but if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend or give it a shout out on social media or indeed throw me the price of a coffee to help me to continue making it. You can do that on buymeacoffee.com forward slash meet your maker. Okay, that's it. I'll be back in two weeks.